does climate change affect health? And what can medical professionals do about it? Those are the very questions that we hope to answer here on Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. I'm Sarah Shu, your host for today's episode. Today, we'll be looking at the effect of climate change on reproductive health. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has recognized that climate change disproportionately affects the well-being of women. Specifically, though, they mention that climate change can exacerbate risks to fetal health during pregnancy. And so what are those risks that climate change poses to pregnancy? And what should we be discussing with pregnant patients relating to climate and their environment? To answer those questions, we'll be speaking with two experts in the field, Dr. Adele Monteblanco and Julia Rothschild. First, we'll be joined by Julia, a third-year medical student at Brown University whose research focus is climate and reproductive health. Julia, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're going to start with a very broad question first. What do we know about the relationship between climate change and pregnancy outcomes? You know, Sarah, it's kind of difficult for me to even answer that question in all honesty, because once you start to dig a little bit deeper, it becomes the question of what isn't the relationship between climate change and pregnancy outcomes, you know? So we have various studies that have shown us that everything from heat to air quality to even access to green space is able to affect fetal development and birth outcomes. Uh, When I think, for instance, of our shared backyard of Rhode Island, the uh, researchers here at the School of Public Health at Brown have found that even relatively low exposure to fine particulate matter during pregnancy is associated with lower birth rates. And then there's also so many other topics that you have to consider from environmental toxins, changes in mosquito patterns, food insecurity, and the physical and psychological impact of natural disasters on pregnant patients that we have to consider. Wow, that's a lot. I know. So in Rhode Island this year, I remember that we've had a very intense heat wave, and I've personally seen many pregnant individuals in clinic complain about the heat. And so what do we know about this relationship between heat and pregnancy, and has it ever even been studied before? Yeah, I'm actually so glad that you asked that question, Sarah, because I've seen a lot of pregnant individuals in the clinic complain about heat too, and I've thought the same thing. And we both know that more folks in the U.S. die from extreme heat than any other weather-related event each year, yet for some reason pregnant patients are often forgot about when considering what populations are at risk, even though we know that pregnant patients are less able to thermoregulate themselves. And so that means that they're more susceptible to heat-related morbidity, like heat exhaustion and strokes. And now that you ask this question, I'm thinking of this great systematic review that was published back in July 2020 by Dr. Bruce Becker. Um, In this study, they looked at around 10 studies that explored the relationship between heat and pregnancy. And 9 out of 10 of those found a significant association with heat and adverse birth outcomes. So there's definitely a strong relationship between the two. What are some of those adverse birth outcomes? So in this exact review, they found relationships between heat exposure and increased adverse outcomes like preterm birth, low birth weight, and increased risk of stillbirth. 
Uh, I think it's also really important to mention too that some of the works that were included in this review found the relationship is most pronounced in Black communities, which just goes to show us that our fight for climate justice and reproductive justice has to be centered around racial justice. I'll be sure to send you along also a recent human rights piece that was really excellent. They essentially called out local and national authorities for failing to address the effects of heat on pregnant individuals, especially within our communities of color. And so there's other potential links between extreme heat exposure and the development of eclampsia in the pregnant individual, as well as congenital heart defects in the fetus and so many other studies like this. And there's a lot of questions that aren't answered yet about long-term health implications too, which is both fascinating and terrifying. And so when I think about how Rhode Island, even as a New England state, we're going to have up to 40 days a year of heat waves by 2050. So I can't help but worry about what lasting effects this is going to have on our pregnant patients and the future population. As we're talking about heat, I can't help but think about the terrible fires on the West Coast this summer. There were reports of babies being born in heavy smoke conditions and I'm just wondering, how does that sort of air pollution affect pregnancy and fetal health? Yeah, absolutely. So there's less data out there, uh, to my knowledge, on how acute changes in air pollution affect pregnancy and fetal health. But again, there have been studies that demonstrate the impact these wildfires have been having in terms of lowering average birth weights and increasing the risk of preterm birth. I know there was one study back at Yale in 2018 that showed mothers in China who were exposed to higher levels of certain air pollutants during pregnancy, and those moms had a higher risk of abnormal fetal growth. And I'll be sure to also include some of the links of the studies I'm referring to. Awesome. We'll be sure to include those in our show notes. In addition to heat and air pollution, though, what else do you think we need to think about when it comes to pregnancy and climate change? Well, you're absolutely right that it is so much more than just heat and air quality. I mean, alongside this, let's even think about what happens when we have these extreme weather events. So we'll be losing medical infrastructure that burns to the ground or have hospitals flooding. And for instance, when a hospital needs to evacuate, the staff has to give medications to actually stop contractions in laboring mothers in order to evacuate them. So when you think about how difficult laboring is, I can't even begin to imagine, Sarah, just how stressful it must be to be in these extreme weather events while laboring for both mother and baby and the long-lasting effects that's going to have. So when we think of these increasing number of natural disasters, we have to keep in mind that this means more people will be displaced, more people are going to lose their employment, and with that, more people are going to lose their access to health care. I think this is going to have huge implications on maternal and fetal health. Wow. So it seems like when it comes down to climate change, there is a lot we have to talk to pregnant patients about. And honestly, I don't think I've ever heard OBGYNs talk to patients about so many of the things that we've talked about here. And so luckily for us, we also have Dr. Adele Monteblanco here, whose research has focused specifically on helping healthcare workers talk to their pregnant patients about heat and climate change. She's also an assistant professor of sociology at Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Monteblanco, we are so excited to learn from you. I am thrilled to be here today. All right. So one of your more recent projects has been training maternal health workers in El Paso, Texas, about the risks of heat on their pregnant patients. 
Before beginning the training, though, did you find that these workers perceived heat or climate change to be a real threat to their patients? Yeah, so this is a really important question. My colleagues and I found that the link between these complex issues of climate change, extreme heat exposure, and an increased risk of poor birth outcomes were actually relatively unknown among our sample of maternal health workers. And that's why we responded with an educational training that we then offered in El Paso. And within that training, we found that these maternal health workers were excited and empowered to engage in a conversation um, and communicate heat concerns to their patients. I would love to hear a little bit more about this training. What exactly did it involve? Yeah, so our goal of this training was to provide some baseline content and outreach materials for providers. And we wanted to make sure that these maternal health care workers in attendance simply became more familiar with the data that extreme heat exposure increases the risk of adverse birth outcomes. And we wanted to make sure that they had outreach materials, and that way it could ease the conversation with their patients. Um, so we developed a few different materials, and the ones that were most successful were a urine chart that helped remind patients to stay hydrated, and a rack card that promoted heat safety during extreme heat events. All right, so let's start with the urine chart. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that was used Yeah, and one of the first things I'll say is that these materials are freely available on my website, which I think um, you'll may thoughtfully uh, link to at a later time. Um, So the urine chart shows a spectrum of different colors from healthy to not so healthy um, and just helps women or pregnant people and often their children because it's a fun um, material for them to compare their urine to um, an assessment of health. And it's it just a general, it gives a general guidance around hydration for people. It's not perfect medical advice. I want to make that really clear. Um, but I will also say that those were asked, um, we gave our, our attendees numerous copies of those. And often they came back for more because it was a popular material. Um, and in fact, we had a birth center in El Paso hanging it up in their um, bathroom. So That's what we were hoping, right, that people would use it, especially in the bathroom, to look at their urine and use it as one assessment of their hydration. You also mentioned a rack card that could be used to promote heat safety during extreme heat events. Tell us more about that one. Okay, so our our rack card was designed to prepare pregnant people for hot temperatures. And it was simply a handout that we used. So this offered just simple reminders of drinking water, staying indoors during the hottest part of the day, um, wearing loose clothing, and then even looking out for a list of typical heat symptoms. So that's headache or heavy sweating or a rapid heartbeat. And then we also importantly offered them some suggestions of what to do if they were concerned about heat illness. So things like moving that person to a cool place um, or putting a damp cloth on that person's forehead. Um, And then of course, if symptoms persisted to call their health provider and or call 911. They're in English and in Spanish. And if anyone wants to assist me in creating them in alternate languages, I definitely welcome that. And, And I will also say too, that I welcome changes to them. Like this was a pilot project that we did in El Paso. And I think we still have a lot to learn. Um, especially from the expertise of medical health professionals serving their community. And so if there are changes that individuals would like to see to these 
graphics and materials, I welcome them. And I also welcome you to take what we created and run with it um, in order to best serve your population. Thank you so much. We are so grateful that you've made your resources openly available. What was the biggest barrier you faced, though, in trying to incorporate climate education into prenatal care? I think the biggest barrier is our inaccurate perception of heat. Um, And what I mean is what I alluded to before is that heat is perceived as a nuisance instead of a public health crisis that is, in fact, worsened by climate change. The other really important barrier is the limited time that doctors have to meet with their patients during the prenatal care appointments. As a medical student, I'm finding prenatal visits to be pretty overwhelming and jam-packed with a lot of tests, guidelines, and questions. What is your advice to healthcare workers who want to start talking about the dangers of heat during these visits as well? Yeah, so I can only imagine how overwhelming it is to have yet another topic added to your short visits. And, and, And so your reference to the limited capacity of prenatal providers is an important one. And I will say in my research with my colleagues, I focused on out-of-hospital midwives and doulas and lactation consultants and counselors. And in their work, they do have more flexibility and time to meet with their patients one-on-one. Really and truly, just having them start the conversation with us about, did you know that there is this increased risk? To me, that was the biggest takeaway. For them to understand, especially in a place like the Southwest, which is quite vulnerable to an increased frequency and severity and longer duration of heat waves, that it's more than a public nuisance. And in fact, it's dangerous for women to be in the heat for a long period of time and have um, increased body temperatures. There's these potential adverse birth outcomes. And you know, as healthcare providers, you do everything in your power to promote the safety of these individuals and their families. And so just a little bit more access to this information to to recognize that, once again, extreme heat is more than a nuisance, um, that there's these actual increased risk of poor outcomes. Um, That was the takeaway that I wanted. Besides one-on-one clinical interactions, how else might doctors promote maternal health in the context of the climate crisis? Yeah, so when we think about who is most at risk, it's those living in poverty who can't access air conditioning, it's agricultural workers who spend hours in the sun, and those communities don't have a lot of options to reduce individual risk. And I think it would be insensitive for me to encourage health providers to simply counsel these patients to make different choices regarding how long they are exposed to heat. I'm a sociologist, and so my students will often tell you uh, that I remind them all the time that individual choices are constrained or enabled by a larger by larger structural forces. And so I do think maternal health workers and their patients being on being informed on this issue really does matter. I just also think that we need to focus on policy changes to create healthier communities. How might medical professionals engage in this kind of policy change? I think current and future health professionals may be in the best position to promote policies that help our communities thrive. And so I would encourage providers to explore getting involved in politics informally and formally and, in fact, beyond voting. 
And I'm really excited about the prospect of doctors, nurses, midwives, and the wonderful allied professionals that you work with getting involved politically. I think you know the strengths and limitations of our current healthcare system, and you use evidence-based science to make your decisions on a daily basis. So I would be the first to urge you, you should be on school boards to determine what the sex ed curriculum looks like for our K-12 Um, community members, and you should be on city councils to write and implement climate action plans. So I do hope that more medical professionals will consider taking on some of these leadership positions. Wow, this has just been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Monteblanco, for sharing your experience and your insight with us. How can our listeners find your work and the clinical materials that you've produced? Yeah, perhaps the easiest way is to simply go to my Twitter page, and my Twitter handle is at Adele underscore Dora, and I'll spell it out, A-D-E-L-L-E underscore D-O-R-A. And there I've posted repeatedly about this project, and there's a link to my professional website, and on that website you'll find links to my collaborative articles, to outreach materials, which we talked about today and you can share with your patients, and the webinar I did with Human Rights Watch. And my email address is listed there as well. If you have more questions, comments, feedback, criticism, I welcome it all. I'd really actually love to hear from your listeners. And again, these links will all be in our show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I'm, I'm thrilled that this is led by women. I'm thrilled that this is led by doctors. And um, it, it gives me hope for the future, honestly, to see young faces have these really thoughtful, critical conversations is just super exciting. I, I honestly thank you for, ha- for having that conversation and including me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This wraps up today's episode. I feel like we only scratched the surface of this topic, so we really hope to have future episodes dedicated to further exploring this relationship between climate change and reproductive health. Thank you for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. You can find us on Instagram at Code Green Climate Pod and on Twitter at Code Green Pod. Please subscribe, rate, and review this show or send us an email at codegreenclimatepod at gmail.com. Let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is co-hosted and produced by Sarah Shu and Natasha Sood. Big shout out to Julia Rothschild for writing this episode and Liana Hagis for sound editing. Thank you to Maddie Baylor-Tapman on Instagram and Julia Rothschild on Twitter. And again, this podcast series could not have been possible without support from medical students for a sustainable future. We also want to acknowledge the indigenous lands that we're recording from. Julie and I are recording out of Providence, Rhode Island, which sits on the occupied lands of the Narragansett, Wampanoag, Nipmuc, Pequot, and Niantic Nations. Dr. Monteblanco spoke to us from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is the traditional homelands of the Cherokee, Yuchi, and Shawnee nations. Thank you for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. We'll see you next time.